Welcome to The Teacher's Story. I'm Jackie Scully. This is a podcast to elevate teacher voice. In this program, you will hear teachers sharing their journey into this profession and their ideas for education. I'm kicking it off Teacher Appreciation Week, which starts May 2nd. This is about honest, vulnerable, inspiring storytelling. It's a time and a space for teachers to share their ideas for the future of education. Teachers are beautiful beings who give their heart and soul to their community. They're innovators, they're inspirational, not only to children, but to the people around them. And they deserve to share their voice. So welcome to The Teacher's Story. Enjoy. Hi, this is Jackie Scully with The Teacher's Story. And today we have John Shambari with us and he is a former international teacher also former administrator and currently an educational consultant. So he has a ton of experience in the education world from various perspectives. I'm so excited to have John on today. So welcome. Thank you, Jackie. Glad to be here. So my first question for you is what got you into education? Was there a certain like moment in your life that kind of brought you to this profession? Yes, I think there were actually a couple. So Prior to becoming an educator, I was going to go into the foreign service. I was going to do government service work. And I was working at a think tank in Washington, D.C. after I had gotten my master's in international relations. So I was working at the uh, law and public. I'm sorry. I was working at the uh, oh American Society of International Law. There we go. And so I was acting and serving as an editor. And because I was on the youngish side at the time, I was more or less working with and mentoring the other interns and showing them how to do things and really enjoyed that aspect of the work, engaging with others. At the same time, Jackie, I was also teaching adults English as a secondary language Mm -hmm. at the community college and enjoying that. And then lastly, I had had a friend in graduate school who had taught English in Japan on the Japan Exchange mm. program. And so that was always in the back of my mind. So enjoying and having enjoyed working with people and, and tutoring and training people, I said, you know, I'm going to go over and I'm going to teach English in Japan for a couple of years mm. and really enjoyed the experience. In a way, I'm glad I didn't realize how different mm. that teaching experience was from being a teacher in the States, even though I do think there are some commonalities. But coming back from that experience, I said, yes, this is the the way I want to go in my career. I enjoy international relations. And ultimately, I became a social studies teacher and a law teacher. So it wasn't lost that experience. But I knew that that teaching was was more my passion. Oh, that's wonderful. And I have not done a, a long-term extent teaching abroad, but I taught in China for a summer. So I just have a little bit of that experience of uh, things that are very different, but also kind of like the similarities. Um, I really connect it with the kids in China. I really loved that experience. So it's great to hear how you had that start with um, teaching in Japan. And we talked a little bit about before when we first met um, teaching in the Middle East. So I don't know if you wanna, kind of my next question is like your early teaching experiences, but if you wanna kind of go and shift into that uh, time period. Yeah, so always loved traveling, but never really enjoyed sitting on a beach when I travel. I really wanna get into the culture. So Mm. having had the opportunity to work at an international school was a great chance to be that traveler, that sojourner, 
but to, to get more involved in a culture, which I felt really taught me perhaps more than I even gave to the community, right? Mm. So I was the director of curriculum at the American uh, School of JETA, International mm. School of JETA. So in that role, I was really brought on board to help with their school reaccreditation efforts because we were going through middle states at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a great experience to do that and to realign and tweak some of our practices that we had to be in line with the guidelines of middle states. And at the same time, it was just a really great experience to mm -hmm. get to be in the Middle East, to, to learn about not only Saudi Arabia, but to travel to some of the other countries in the region and to learn some of the similarities and differences. And then even since that time, Jackie, I have had the opportunity to go back and work with the Department of Education of Dubai mm. in helping to evaluate and assess some of their American curriculum schools. I was doing that not only with the Ministry of Education of Dubai, but also this organization called Education Development Trust, which was more or less the, the subcontracting partner uh, connecting the people such as myself, the experts, the assessors with the ministry. So mm. for your viewers out there, for those who would listen, listen to this in the form of a podcast, there are definitely many opportunities. I will say that to be an educator overseas, either within an international school or even as a consultant working with various ministries of education. That's really exciting. And um, that's great that you are now working um, with consulting with Dubai. I had a teacher on my podcast uh, over the summer who is first year teacher and teaching in Dubai and loves it. And just kind of more into the experience of um, the lifestyle or the culture of when you were in Saudi Arabia. I know we shared a little bit about like when you had a field trip and you went to Turkey, but anything else you think that would be interesting to share from your experience? Definitely. I, I do think Saudi Arabia can be a challenging place for some Americans, particularly women. Uh, so, but even as an American, as an American man, you know, you still have to be respectful of the culture. And so mm -hmm. there are certain things that we take for granted here that we do all do on a daily basis that you can't really do in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And so just learning in a way uh, the freedoms that we have here and how we shouldn't take those freedoms for granted. Mm. I know that sounds trite, but when you're in a situation where, you know, you can't do certain things or you shouldn't do certain things or you do need to wear certain things, uh, you know, it, it reminds you of those freedoms, mm -hmm. number one. But on the positive side, I would also say that there are experiences that I had or could have in Saudi Arabia at the time in a way because it was more of a closed off society. Because at the time, and I think this has changed since I was there, you couldn't be in Saudi Arabia on a tourist visa. You had to be there on a working visa. So in some ways, the coral reefs were pristine. So if you were into... I never got the chance to do it, but if you were into scuba diving, the coral reefs were, like I said, totally wow. pristine. Uh, you could do, you could go watch uh, falcons and falcon racing and camel mm -hmm. racing. 
you could do uh, a weekend night trip into the desert. Mm. Now I would recommend those that do that. Don't obviously do that alone. You do need to go in a caravan in case a car breaks down. You don't want to be alone in the middle of the desert. Right. But as long as you're in a caravan with others, you'll be fine. It's a great experience. Dune buggying, if you will. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of that in Dubai and the UAE as well. So there are certain benefits to even going to a country that might be a little bit more closed than what we're used to as Americans. I'd add they had great fruit juices. I know that might <laughs> sound crazy, but in a way, because there was no official alcohol in the country, mm. it really meant that uh, you know your dinners were peppered with fresh fruits, vegetables, mm. healthy drinks. So with every growth or every challenge area, there do come unexpected opportunities and pleasures as well, if that makes any kind of yeah, sense. Yeah, it makes the complete sense. And I think being an American teaching abroad or from any country, but I, I think especially being an American because we, we do have so many freedoms. Um, and I sensed that a little bit when I was in China where like we couldn't talk about democracy, really. We couldn't talk about voting and just protest or anything like that. And we would have these circles where students can ask us any questions, but it was really more about like our culture, way of life, sports, you know, other hobbies and things like that. But um, it makes you appreciate what you do have. And it also makes you, I think, just respect people and their cultures more because you're like, I am an outsider and I am here and I do want to follow the social norms and cultural norms. And there, there just tends to be a little bit more of this sense of respect um, instead of like, I can just say what I want, or I could just dress what I, how I want or do what I want. And like with all that freedom is great, but there is this level of like, I think another type of respect that you see in some of these countries. And I know, like, I don't know for you, I, I'm making an assumption, but in China, the status of a teacher is like up here, yes. you know, very high respect um, profession where you don't really see that as much maybe in America. Yes. And I do think that teachers were accorded a certain amount of respect, particularly as the, the school I was at was an international school. So you had families that were paying for the privilege of coming to the school. Uh, now, most of the students that were in our school were not Saudis. They were okay. other foreigners, but they were mostly people of Arabic descent. So okay. Their parents might have been Egyptian doctors or lawyers who found themselves, you know, American citizens. So their parents had either been born in the States or came to the States, mm -hmm. made their careers in the States, and then found an opportunity to go back and give back in the Middle Eastern region. So we definitely had a lot of well-supported students financially, uh, but again, parents wanted our school to succeed and mm. they, you know, they, they wanted their best education that they could have for their children, particularly being overseas, you know, you don't have maybe as many options mm. as you have here in the States in private education. Mm -hmm. So there was that respect accorded because it was an opportunity to go to this school or any of the other four or five 
well-known international mm -hmm. schools in the city of Jeddah where I was located. Okay. Well, thank you. This is so fascinating. Um, so I always move into this question about the pandemic, and I know now you're doing educational consulting. So just your experience in this field um, during the pandemic, any challenges, aha moments, things that are takeaways for you? Sure. Well, definitely coming back from the pandemic, we see students struggling in doing certain things that I think, again, we took for granted mm. before COVID. So students really are struggling with having to be fully present in a classroom and not being on Zoom and, you know, shutting off the video yeah. and going to do something. So that has been a challenge for teachers to really transition activities and move the class from one activity to the next, not to linger too long on an activity to mm -hmm. always have that variety so students don't get bored. Mm -hmm. I see students struggling a little bit still with, again, being sitting in those seats and, and being in, in, in our classrooms. But again, if our teachers do know how to transition from activity to activity, that helps. Mm -hmm. If they do know how to engage students in collaborative learning, I think that helps. So that's one area of difference I see pre and post pandemic. Another area of difference is definitely how well students engage with each other. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of work that I do, Jackie, is around collaborative learning as a coach. And even COVID aside, if I get pushback from teachers on using collaborative approaches in learning, let's say group work, the one pushback I will get, and I got this even before COVID, is, mm -hmm. well, my students can't do this. They don't behave or mm -hmm. I'm going to lose control of my classroom. Mm -hmm. Well, if teachers know that that is how their students are apt to act, what can you do as an educator to set the ground rules, provide mm -hmm. students with guiding questions? I even love working with educators who are open to using discussion stems, mm -hmm. discussion starters not just for agreement, but how do you engage with someone when you're in disagreement? How do you disagree mm. with the idea, but not the person? So in my coaching practice, I'm seeing a lot more of my work gearing geared around productive discussion protocols mm. and productive project-based learning and productive group work. So I think that's another change that we've seen you know, pre and post COVID. Uh, and then just the burnout that educators mm. are feeling, right? And even educators having to remember to go back and utilize all the in-person teaching methodologies. That's true. Because even they got used to doing everything on Zoom. So yeah. I've been in a few classrooms where students are on the computer all the time and they do need mm -hmm. to have that personalization and they do need to be engaging with technology, but right. how do we also help our educators even do that now again in balance now mm. that we're back in the classroom? Yes, and one thing I wanna hit on because it's been a goal of mine this year is the word balance because, and I, I love that you brought not only students needing to also be kind of relearning how to do school in person, but like teachers too. Like, I was fortunate to be in person most of the time besides the lockdown and 
the spring of 2020, but there was a lot of educators that were virtual, like for a year and a half, maybe even into last school year for part of it. Um, and even hybrid in a sense, if you had some students in front of you, you were mostly doing everything online. And we got really good at building websites. We got exactly. really good at making flipped classroom videos. You know, things that we never really did fully before. We got really good at that. That took a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of research that we almost went so full throttle with that, that now coming back in person, we're like you said, the burnout is like, I, I can't do both. Like I, <laughs> I don't know how to go back to how I was doing it before I built all this stuff on my website. It's beautiful. Like I can like re, you know, bring things in and port them from the year before, but then it doesn't work completely in person. Exactly. So now we're like toggling between beautiful website, beautiful online program to no, but I need to scale down and really do like in-class activities. And so I, I even think this school year is like now the third year of trying to figure it out. Yeah. And I said last year was actually more difficult than the like the, the COVID year where may, many people were virtual because the hybrid was so difficult. But I've been trying to have that balance. So like I'm instituting this thing at the end of each week where um, I'm, I teach uh, history and psychology. So I do current events. And then in my psychology, we do like psych psychology news. So they look at studies. Nice. And so at the end of each week, I have them talk about that, present that as a couple kids go each week on a rotation basis. And then I give them journals. Like here's a composition book. We're gonna write about some of these topics or maybe a theme came out and it just like literally comes to me. I don't plan it. And sometimes I ask them like, what do you see as maybe a theme or a pattern in these news stories or the psych news or things that connect to what we're doing in our curriculum right now? And just like, let it evolve, you know? I love and, that. And they write and then they talk and we're just not on technology for a period, one period. Out of the right. Week, you know? I love that. But you know, not that we should throw everything out from what we learned in using technology. So if that's working in your class, keep doing it. It's yeah. great. But nobody says a teacher can't be using a Flipgrid, right. even for that, where, you know, and maybe that would be helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Where students can see immediately what other students are writing, you know, without having to go up to the front of the board, too. So, yeah, yeah. so when I'm saying to your listeners out there, oh, we, we don't know now how to go back from technology, <laughs> I'm not saying, like you said, I think the key yeah. word is balance. Mm -hmm. How do we take the good things we learned about using technology? You also mentioned that you were doing videos with your students, right? Mm -hmm. They could still be doing, whether they're your students, my students, somebody else's students, we could still be having students demonstrate proficiency or creating an end product mm -hmm. that gives them more choice, right? Yes. So... Yeah. Not everyone has to necessarily, I mean, I know sometimes we all have to write an essay, but not everyone has to write an essay all the time. So maybe mm -hmm. they could create a video and maybe somebody else could write that essay. Mm -hmm. Maybe somebody else could be doing an old fashioned poster. Mm -hmm. Maybe somebody else can do that poster digitally, right? Mm -hmm. So so like you said, I think everything comes down to balance. Mm -hmm. And I think COVID, 
really strained our ability to do things in balance. Mm. I think we went from one direction <laughs> completely to the other direction. Yeah, and I think we're in a place where it is about having um, this hybrid system where utilizing digital work, but having still the ability to do something hands-on like a poster or a live presentation. And I think giving students choice is the biggest thing. I was actually talking about that with students today in one of my clubs during lunch is that I think there needs to be more student choice in general, not just with assignments, but just the coursework that they take. I'm, you know, I'm at the secondary level and I mostly teach 11th and 12th graders. 12th graders get a lot of choice, but it's like they're waiting for their senior year to finally take really what the classes they want to take. Exactly. And I think it should start much earlier because I think there would be more buy-in um, and they would get a lot more out of their educational experience. And I think often we don't think they know themselves enough or know what they truly want, but they do. Like if you give them the choice, they know how to decide like, well, maybe I want to double up on English or the arts or like this class looks really interesting. Maybe instead of waiting my senior year for psychology, I can exactly. take it as a 10th grader. Um, and I think that's a very easy, quick fix in the education system is just to offer more types of courses that students can have that choice in that. Um, and kind of leading into my last question is, and we're kind of talking about that already, moving forward out of the pandemic, what do you see as like maybe the big educational reform, you know, uh, topics, uh, like anything that we could really push our system into a whole new direction? Definitely. And like you said, I think we've already been talking about it a little bit. The pandemic really forced us to be, first of all, using our parents more as true allies and not just as people who sign the letters who come home in the back that, that come home in the backpack right yeah. so we've really had to rely on them to be mentors academic mm -hmm. mentors if you will to our students especially when our students were working at home if they were in a school unlike yours right mm -hmm. where they were home more often than not right mm -hmm. so number one how do we move our thinking around parent engagement mm -hmm. from simply nodding their heads yes and agreeing to things or not agreeing to things, but really involving them in decision-making. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about visioning, missioning. I'm talking about, uh, you know, what is the purpose of our school? Mm -hmm. What should we be doing with our students? Also too, how do we perhaps bring in parent academies, whether those parent academies are digital or in person, how do we continue to help parents be these instructional academic allies mm. that they were during COVID? How do we actually give them some skills where they can have conversations around what their students are reading? They could talk about close reading strategies. Like, what does that look like? So I think that's one place. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't forget the pandemic because I think the pandemic gave us an unexpected aha moment in that mm -hmm. regard. So that's number one. I think two also, like you said, Jackie, we've been talking about it, student agency and ownership, right? We really did require our students to step up to the plate as well mm -hmm. with technology, not only our teachers, but our students. And yes, different students succeeded at different levels with this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but they can do it if they have to. And so 
how do we give students more choice in how they learn, when they learn, the product that they want to create to demonstrate their learning? I think that's another area where we want to move post-pandemic. And if the burnout of teachers shows us anything, mm -hmm. and the rising rates of suicidal ideology that mm -hmm. we're seeing our young people have, or thoughts of suicide that we see our young people have, clearly we need to do better in teaching the whole child. Yeah. Yes, Jackie, you teach psychology. Yes, I was a social studies teacher myself. And proud of it and will love the content until the day I go, mm -hmm. right? But ultimately we are teaching whole people. Yeah. And so how do we help our students to see the strengths they have, not get overwhelmed by their own weaknesses, mm -hmm. not paralyzed by their weaknesses, but help them realize that every human being has strengths and weaknesses. It's not a question about what having weaknesses, but rather a question about What's your plan of action to strengthen your abilities in your growth area, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't even like necessarily calling them weaknesses. I yeah. like calling them growth areas or opportunities for growth. Mm -hmm. So how do we embed SEL? How do we embed a growth mentality mm -hmm. uh, in our schools? How do we get our students again owning the learning? being involved in their own assessment of their learning, mm -hmm. having our students really truly be full partners with us, and I'd even add families, in what the next step is for each and every one of our students. Yes, I agree 100% with all those points because I've been talking about this in many episodes that it's all about like co-creation. I think the teacher role and the student role and now bringing parents in, it's not... And even like in a school, it's not just top down, right? But it's about, we all are, we are all stakeholders in this industry, in this community, and we all have accountability, every single member, you know, from superintendent, administrator, you know, you as a consultant, parent, student, teacher, everything. And I feel like there needs to be more of that collaboration and a lot more communication, especially with parents. I think we see a real divide in this country where in certain places, parents against like the school board, right? Or parents against teachers and what the curriculum looks like. And then the administrator becomes like the middle person in between and doesn't really know how to like get those two on board. And it's just all this tension. And one Great. thing the parents learned and came out of the pandemic was they saw the actual teaching. They saw the actual curriculum because it was there in their living room or kitchen. And they do have a say. I mean, I'm not saying that all these parents should go, this is what you should be teaching my child. Right, right. But they do have the right to know why we're teaching what we're teaching and to ask questions. And I really truly believe in like having some kind of forum at the beginning of the school year, somewhere where maybe each department presents the curriculum, the purpose of their curriculum, the mission of their department, and then get feedback from parents and have them ask questions about it and get them on board. So they feel like they're part of it because I think parents too feel that they're just in the dark about everything, but then they had this little peek in during the pandemic and they're like, wait, what? 
why am I not, why am I not engaged with this? Why am I not asking questions? And like, I just think there needs to be more transparency overall. And there, it would just make a much better positive experience for the teachers as well. Cause a lot of teachers are leaving, you know, there's, you could talk about salary, you could talk about teacher respect and all of that, but there was a lot of pushback from either parent communities or society at, at large. And they feel like they are just, you know, just getting like, you know, chastised, if you will. And really communication and transparency can fix that if you just build that culture into the school. Exactly. And, and another word that, res that you said that resonated with me is indeed transparency. So before, when we were talking about having parent academies, that's a great mm -hmm. way to get parents involved when in the methodology of how teachers are teaching, right? Or, you know, what about bringing back the old fashioned newsletter, but not mm -hmm. doing it in an old fashioned way, mm -hmm. but maybe making a video newsletter of a student presenting their project, right? Yeah. So, and to your point, bringing in parents for focus groups, mm -hmm. having parents do surveys, climate surveys mm -hmm. on an ongoing basis, not even just, I would even argue, not even just at the beginning of the year, but throughout the year, yeah. how are you feeling? How, you, how are you, uh, what's resonating with what your child is learning in school? What do you like? What would you change if you can? That needs to be an ongoing conversation mm -hmm. with parents. So how are we doing those focus groups? How are we doing those surveys? How again are we inviting our teach our, our parents back into school mm. when to your point, Jackie, school is not immediately on their kitchen table anymore, right? Yeah. Um, I think we could still do it. And I think we mm -hmm. need to do it because I truly believe if families understood what is going on in the majority of schools and what is not going on in the majority of schools there wouldn't be as much rancor mm -hmm. in terms of the curriculum or what's being taught. I do think our politicians have had a hand in unfortunately skewing what yeah. might be going on. Now, I'm not saying there aren't examples of, you know, this or that, right? But I truly do believe the majority of schools in this country and the majority of teachers are not putting forth a, a, a certain political agenda one yeah. way or another, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I do think most of our educators are aware mm -hmm. that as much as they can, they need to try to be impartial and provide information and let students uh, come to, you know, their decisions. Mm -hmm. Again, I know that as humans, we mm -hmm. all trip on that line every now and then and students especially the older students such as the ones you teach probably know where we might stand on certain yeah. even though we try to avoid right. that I had that when I taught law and public safety you know I tried not to let my opinions out but probably the students knew mm -hmm. but I did try to present both sides but going back to the initial point I think the more transparency the less miscommunication and misunderstanding. Mm. And if there is something going on that is not favorable to certain individuals, there could be a better opportunity to discuss it mm. before it blows up mm. into an uncontrollable situation. 
Absolutely. I mean, we almost have to take control over this rhetoric because the media and like you said, politics get infused and they see it kind of like, you know, simmering, like it's this like boiling pot that's ready to explode. The lid's going to go off, which basically has. Um, and they use it to their advantage. And of we're course. doing a disservice to our whole industry and our communities by not stepping in and saying, no, no, we're going to make sure we're having conversations and we're inviting parents in and we are having teachers and parents and students all talking and working together so that we can get on the same page and not let the media spin it, you know? So I think we need to kind of like pull those reins back in and, and say, you know, we have I this. Agree. <laughs> I totally agree. And I think another difference that should come after the pandemic is even how teachers define themselves and what it means to be a teacher. Now, I know we're all busy educators, especially those of us still in the classroom, but what I mean here is, and there are organizations that are starting to do this out there. You know, my background is more practice than policy, mm -hmm. but how do we get teachers more involved in the policy discussions mm -hmm. that are going on about teaching? Because yeah. When there is this pushback, to your point when you said teachers should say, hold on a minute, mm -hmm. when there is that pushback from politicians, regardless, liberal, conservative, what yeah. have you, right? Where is the where are the teachers speaking up mm -hmm. and saying, hold on a second, this issue is a little bit more nuanced than this? Yeah. Yeah. And I think partially because teachers are so busy in the classroom <laughs> and then they go home and they're working on lesson plans right so i get it yeah. i get it and i know those people that listen to this podcast are probably going to say john you're living in a fantasy <laughs> land i don't have time yeah. i'm not saying everyone does it like we all we all do activities some of us do activities with our students right or you know the gardening club or the drama club why not mm validate and honor teachers who spend their time again not a plug for any one organization i don't know their work in depth but some organization like teach plus right mm -hmm. where it's about connecting practitioners with policy yes and having more teachers out there with a voice i'll tell you this jackie i mean we connected on linkedin right mm -hmm. but I'm amazed at how many educators are still not using social media right. to make these connections. Yes, I see teachers on TikTok and <laughs> you know, some of those TikToks are useful and, and, and wonderful. And I've even learned some strategies. Mm -hmm. Some maybe are more on the funny side of things, which is important too, mm -hmm. but why aren't we having as educators more conversations around what is being portrayed in the media? Mm -hmm. Why are we not adding our voices as much? And yeah, I mean, the pushback there might be, well, we're not invited to the table. We're not mm -hmm. invited to, uh, you know, we're not invited to the board office meeting. So I do think we should mm -hmm. be inviting teachers. To yes, I think so too. But also, we're not in the state office, right? Yeah. But social media does have an mm -hmm. opportunity. A lot of bad with social media. Yeah. <laughs> but the good is any one of us can be engaging mm 
-hmm. in these topics of conversation. And policymakers are on different sites. Yeah, they are. They might, you know, they might not be on TikTok yet as much, but they're certainly on TikTok and their organizations are on TikTok. Mm -hmm. So, and, and state government officials are, if not directly themselves, they have staffs monitoring what the zeitgeist is out there. So yeah, I just yeah. think we need to do more to professionalize our profession yes. and let people know that we are professionals, just like doctors, just like lawyers. Yeah. It takes a lot of education to become a teacher. Mm -hmm. And there's many teachers that I would say majority have advanced degrees, you know, even PhDs. And that was kind of my inspiration with starting this. I know that seems like just a little small podcast, um, but connecting with other people in other industries that maybe didn't know like all the ins and outs of education or what's been going on. I think we, I wouldn't, I want to empower teachers to speak up for themselves and to share their professionalism and their ideas, because if you're going to improve or fix anything in education, you really need to go to the teachers that are in the classroom or the people that are been, or they were a teacher at some point, and maybe they're doing like the work that you're doing as a consultant. Um, I just, I don't know. I think there's still this culture of, at least in my experience, many teachers don't like speaking up. I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know if it's just been, we never felt that we could or that anyone actually listens to us or that's not our ro role in society. Um, and it's starting to come out a little bit more. There are more, I've seen more educators on like Instagram and TikTok speaking out about against, you know, lack of teacher respect, salary, the whole curriculum pushback, all of that. You know, I went the angle of, I want to share stories and be inspiring and not just, yes, we will talk about the issues, but not just be like, you know, vent, 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 you know, and just like, here is the whole story of a human who went into education and why they went into it, why they care about it. And here are the issues and here are the, some of the solutions. Um, and I think we're getting there. I think we're at the beginning of it. And I think the pandemic as awful and challenging as it was in so many ways, I think the pandemic for many professions, but just focusing on education is now giving a little bit of a stage for these voices, um, for teachers to feel empowered, whether they're leaving and then saying why they're leaving and going maybe into other work to improve education or do other things that maybe helps, you know, with um, DEI or working with other teachers. Um, or those who are now, you know, just saying, I'm still in it, but I have things that I really want to express and talk about. And, you know, I, I think that will come, it will be more normalized. I just, it's slow. <laughs> it's a yeah, slow process, exactly. but it's taken a while because I think for a long time, unless you're in a union or a union rep and not, I mean, I'm in a private school, so I, you know, we don't even have that. It's just, a lot of times teachers never felt they could do it. Right. I think one thing, it's a stressor and it's obviously affecting our students. You know, all the teachers leaving and, and lack of recruitment of new teachers. But in a way, and I'm not saying that's a good thing, but right. the silver lining of it is policymakers do now have to pay attention. They do. We've yeah. been, you know, we talk about COVID and teachers leaving because of COVID. Jackie, teachers have been dissatisfied well before COVID, yeah. well before COVID. 
And we've always been, and I'm not the only person to, to use this expression. I'm sure you've heard other guests say it, and I'm sure you hear it in other conversations. We've kicked the can down the road as far as we can kick the can down the road. The, the bottom line is we lack educators to teach our children. And that's because we ignored teacher complaints before COVID. Mm -hmm. And after COVID, we don't have a choice because so many people are choosing to leave the profession, either because of COVID or because they're ready to retire, because we did have a lot of teachers, particularly in the baby boomer generation who became educators. They're, some of them are still teaching and more power to them, but generally speaking, that generation is starting to leave at least full-time teaching roles, mm -hmm. right? Um, and yet we have this new generation, Generation Z, I guess, coming in. Mm -hmm. In fact, I just recently highlighted a post of an article somebody wrote about what we need to be doing to attract and retain yeah. Gen Z teachers yeah. and how they're different than other generations. But, but generally speaking, Gen Z as a generation is looking to change society, mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily doing it within a classroom. They're not becoming teachers en masse or we wouldn't have the shortages that we have. So mm -hmm. in a way, policymakers on the state level, on the federal level, on the local level, really do have to be open to not only hearing what teachers are saying, not just about recruitment, but what it's going to take to retain them and mm -hmm. start figuring out how we're going to make some of these changes. Yeah. I.e., I think even just allowing teachers an opportunity to collaborate with one another, to actually build co-planning teaching time into the schedule, yeah. not at the end of the day on the teacher's time, but <laughs> built into the schedule. Yeah. That would help. That would be a big help right there. But what are we going to do to start, you know, retaining our teachers? I just recently collected many quotes uh, in an article around what we need to, from educating educator leaders mm -hmm. around what we do need to be doing, not only to recruit, but to retain educators. And mm -hmm. uh, one thing that really resonated in that article from multiple people was the need to, yes, perhaps look more creatively for where we get teachers, such as grow your own programs and paid apprenticeships. Mm. But on the other hand, what does retainment look like? Yes. So some folks were indeed talking about collaborative leadership opportunities, distributive leadership, more ownership for the teachers. And, and I still hear in far too many corners that our educators do not have ownership. Yeah. Not, I don't, I'm not saying a blank check, right. but <laughs> not any element of ownership. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there needs, just like in all industries, there needs to be more ability for growth because I think a lot of, especially this generation you're talking about with Gen Z, almost any other industry you go into, there's this sense of like, how do I grow as a leader or how do I grow into other positions? And it's really just like teacher, maybe department chair, administrator, superintendent, that, that's it. There's so many other ways to lead in a school. You can, you could be a leader to start your own initiative, you know, a program in the school and it should be paid. That's another thing. There's a lot of times where 
teachers can leave things in a school and there's a really small stipend or it's completely voluntary. So it needs to be looked at as like, no, you're a leader in our school and you're going to start this program and we will pay you for that. You know, we'll pay you for your PD. We'll pay you for, you know, uh, the the time that you're probably going to have to use outside of the school day, or we'll put it into the school day somehow, maybe take a class away from you. And then that kind of is like part of your salary, right? Like that has to be looked at in a different way than just like, here's another role for you because it makes you feel like, you have a voice in the school, but we're not paying you more, or you're still teaching a full load of classes and you are stretched thin and that's burnout right there. Exactly. You know? So I so think I, there needs to be yeah. a lot of those changes. I think it gets to what we we're talking about before about building into the schedule, what you value. And if we're going to say, we, if we say we value teachers, we do need to build that time into the schedule to allow them to work on that project or to allow them to collaborate with one another in a PLC, right? It has to be funded as a part of the day. And if that means that teacher is out of that classroom, what are you going to do to ensure that those students are still with an educator while Mm -hmm. that teacher is in their PLC? How are we funding that, right? Mm -hmm. How are we putting our money where our mouth is? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I agree with you, Jackie. I think it's now at a point where we have to put our money where our, our mouths Absolutely. are. Absolutely. You know, yeah. yes, it's about teachers uh, stepping up to the plate. And yes, it's about distributive leadership. But enough with these unfunded, mm. voluntary voluntary activities, but are sort of unfunded mandates at times too mm-hmm. in our schools, if that makes mm-hmm. any kind of sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need, like I said, we just need to, be starting to to do that yeah we we have a lot of money in this country despite inflation right we are still the number one economy in the world and and maybe this is going to sound political we give we give bailouts to big corporations right and yes, there has been more ESSER funding given to schools. And I'm glad a lot of schools are using it for tutoring, coaching support, um, those extra things that might not have gotten as much funding in the past. But as the richest society in the world, granted, I know we might not be that way forever, yeah. but we are still the richest society at the moment. The fact that we have the inequities we have in our education system, Mm -hmm. that if I am a poor student in the inner city or a poor student in a rural community, my quality of education might not be the equivalent of somebody in a more affluent public school system, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we've always had private options for for those that could afford it. And I'm not saying those should go away, but I just think we need to do better. We need to do better by our educators and we need to do better by our students and stop looking at our educators as the enemy and realize that teaching is a hard job. I would ask any governor to go in and teach (laughs) a class for a full day. Yes, please. (laughs) A week. Just one day. One day. I don't even know if they can get through one day. 
Right. I don't mean a walkthrough for 20 minutes. No, like sitting down in class and, for no, an hour. Checking, like, where's your lesson plan, governor? Yeah. I want to see your lesson plan, right? And all or, eyes are on you. You right. are under the microscope, not exactly. anybody else. Exactly. Or governor so-and-so, what yeah. data did you use to inform your personalized yeah. learning groups, right? Mm -hmm. I would love it. I think decisions would be very different mm -hmm. if more government officials actually did sit down not sit down because you can't sit down. You shouldn't sit down, but mm -hmm. actually taught and ran around a classroom yeah. all day. Yeah. And just to wrap up here, and these are such wonderful ideas. And I, I love talking about this at the, like, the higher level of government and policy and especially the inequities in public education. Public education is a social program and it is really inequitable in this country. Um, and you made a great point that we are still the wealthiest country in the world and our education system does not match that at all. Correct. Say, say that about healthcare as well. Um, but one of my first interviews that I shared in this podcast after I shared my own story. So my episode two was my friend Kelly um, from my previous school. And she basically was like, if we don't invest in our children, which means if also we don't invest in our teachers, we're literally not investing in this country. Like you have to fund this industry and this program. Otherwise, long-term, and we're already going to see the ramifications like now soon, yeah. you are, you are going to see a huge brain drain and you're going to see, you know, a lot of people just not being able to really like be the leaders that we need in this country or be in the certain industries and critical thinkers and all of that, or maybe even go to other countries to find work. So it's like, we have to put the funding there. It has to be made a priority because it will eventually be a system that will collapse and we will have a lot of our future generations just not educated well. And I always say like, we're gonna have like two Americas, you know, I don't wanna say like civil war, but because education is so inequitable, I mean, you're going to see it. You're going to yeah. see these two Americas. So yes, the funding needs to happen. And I think the transparency needs to happen. The respect. Crew creation, parents, administrators, teachers, students, everyone communicating and being on board with one another, coming together again as a community and not fighting against one another. And I really... I know we're at the beginning stages and I know it feels like we're in turmoil, but I think this coming out of the pandemic is that beginning baby step to in that direction. And we just got to keep talking about it. I That's it. totally agree with that. Totally agree. And we've talked Jackie about a lot of very high level things, even bringing it back to, to the schools, just do something, start somewhere. Right. Yeah. So when we talked about parents and involving parents, What's one or two things you could do as a school administration to bring parents into decision making? Mm -hmm. Teachers, what's one or two things a school community can do to start valuing teachers more? Is that providing time for them within the school day to co-teach, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What's one or two things we could do for our families, our students, and our teachers to let each of those stakeholders know that they're valued, mm. they're a part of this process and their voices are needed and we're gonna fund that and make sure that happens. 
we're not going to solve all the world's problems. We're not going to solve all of America's problems in a year, two years, or even maybe 10 or 20 years. Unfortunately, I think, Jackie, that inequity is still yeah. going to be there for a while. But I do truly believe if, if schools just start thinking about mm -hmm. one or two things that they could change in the right direction, mm -hmm. you know, I know that sounds Pollyanna-ish, but eventually... Mm -hmm you'll have less things to fix. Yeah, it's just realistic. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Don. It's been so great having you on today and such wonderful ideas and insights, especially from all the different parts of the education system you've been a part of. I mean, you bring so much expertise to this conversation and also about policy, so I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm glad I warmed up. I was a little worried I wasn't going to warm up there at first, but <laughs> I'm glad the rest of the conversation went okay. <laughs> it was wonderful. And thank you. And I'm sure all our listeners are really going to appreciate these ideas that you shared with us today. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jackie. I enjoyed it. Have a great day. Bye. Yeah, bye.